Welcome to the Corlin Economics Report, a weekly look at financial and political topics relating to asset-based investing. Guests on this program pay no fees to appear, and guests and hosts disclose any equity interest in companies profiled. Now, the Corlin Economics Report. Hey, everyone. Welcome in to the weekend edition of the KE Report. Corey and Chad here, your hosts on this weekend's edition, also your hosts throughout the week on our website, kereport.com, and podcast, The KE Report. You can also check us out on some of our social media channels and on YouTube. Just search The KE Report. We're kicking off this weekend show with Mike Larson, editor-in-chief at Money Show. And Mike, just a broad comment here. We will get into individual sectors, but look, Money Show is really focused on a wide range of markets. You bring in a lot of traders, you bring in a lot of market commentators and let them take the floor, share their thoughts with where they think markets are going and what will be the outperforming sectors. Can you summarize what you've been hearing from some of the guests you like? And also, in all fairness, your calls on the market which have played the downside, the bear market a couple of years ago, and that rebound bull market that we've seen. What are people at the Money Show most interested in? Yeah, I think, you know, in, in this market environment, I mean, it, it's interesting because growth tech, that whole part of the, the market, it doesn't just have great stories to it, great narrative, things like you know, AI and all the, the, the ways it can change business and consumer uh, operations and and things like that. It also happens to have market performance. If you want to find something that's catnip for investors, it's a great story and great performance. And that's what we've seen in tech overall. And then some subsectors of tech, sub areas like, like AI related stocks and so on. So clearly people are interested in that. Um, they're making money in that and they want to know how to make more money in that. That being said, I think that, you know, there's something to be said for some of these sleepier sectors and, and you know, people looking at this being a year where Yes, tech is still going to perform solidly, but there are other places that you're going to be able to make money. And I think some of the things that, that have not performed as well, but, but that could play catch up, let's call it things like financials, let's call it things like small caps. I think people want to look you know, for other alternatives. I mean, it's great making money in one sector that had a phenomenal 2023 and that will probably have a pretty solid 2024. But people are also looking elsewhere. And you know, I think one of the big stories out there is hey, if this is a market where we dodge a recession, which is what the numbers seem to be suggesting, and not only that, we get the soft landing, which is something that you know the Fed has tried to stick many, many times and probably hasn't effectively done so in about 30 years since the mid-1990s. If you get that scenario, then that is pretty darn bullish for small caps and other you know, sort of domestically growth, growth levered type sectors. And by growth, I mean economic growth, not growth as in big tech growth. So long story short, I think that you know, this is going to be a year again where people are generally optimistic, not wildly optimistic, but generally optimistic and want to know about some other things, uh, maybe outside of tech as much as they're still interested there. I would add that the crypto space, cryptocurrencies are, you know, we're starting to get some nibbles and some interest there. That's been a sector that obviously has had so many sort of boom bust cycles over the last five, six, seven years. But this time with the sort of mainstreaming of the sector, uh, all the money coming in, the new Bitcoin ETFs getting approval and what that's likely to uh, have an impact in terms of institutionalization of a sector that has you know, been at the fringes of the finance world. Um, that has a lot of people excited. So I think that's another part, another thing that people are interested in. And, and I think probably rationally so. Well, Mike, let's tug on a few of those strings as far as these individual sectors outside of tech. Obviously, everybody can see the outperformance of tech over the last year or so and the uh, excitement around AI. But 
you mentioned the small caps there, and I'm thinking back to the fourth quarter of last year where we saw the markets kind of bottom in October and then rip higher, and, and everything was ripping higher across the board. But some of those small caps in the Russell 2000 really took off. And now some of them have corrected down a little bit here just to start the year after after quite a rally. Maybe they were getting a little bit overbought. But you'd made the point of some research you looked at that showed other market cycles and uh, how often the small caps underperform right before they really outperform. Maybe unpack that a little bit further for listeners here. Yeah, sure. I mean, there was some great data. I think it was Charlie Biello who, who put it together. I follow him on t- on Twitter or X or whatever we're calling it these days. But some of the work being done there, and it sort of put to bed the narrative that, well, you can't have a lasting market rally if small caps, if it's not a little broader, if some of those stocks being left behind don't participate. It, you know, he, he looked at some of the data and I think it was pretty convincing and the narrative kind of shifted to, well, you can have that where big cap and, and big tech or big cap is running and some other stocks are being left behind. But typically that condition is solved by other stocks playing catch up and not just catch up, but overtaking the, the, the big runners. So in other words, you can, is a glass half full or glass half empty when you look at a market that doesn't have as much participation as you want. His argument was again that you're going to see this situation resolved not by like big tech crashing and, and small cap continuing to dramatically underperform, but rather big tech and the big cap part of the market doing okay, but the small cap side of the market picking up the baton and running, particularly over the course of the next 12 to sort of 15 months. And I think that sounds pretty valid to me. I mean, you know, when I think about sort of conceptually what type of environment is great for, again, domestic growth, sort of your smaller mid cap type names. It's a situation where everybody's priced for a recession or a hard landing. You don't get it. So then you get some more of the growth component there that, hey, maybe these guys are going to be tied to a little bit of a rebound in the economy or at least just a softening and st- stabilization versus a recession. And oh, by the way, now you don't have the interest rate situation hanging over them. Uh, and some of the other things that were ha- holding back the sector, particularly financials being a kind of a key component in, in that in the smaller cap or mid cap space. You remove these worries about this mass wave of bank failures, which is obviously what we were all dealing with a year ago at this time. Um, you remove that and then, hey, what kind of environment is it? It's pretty bullish. So uh, I think that's what you're going to see is you're going to see some rotation. You're going to see some broadening out. You're going to see a, a, a market that, you know, we did run in small caps in November and December. We corrected in the back half of December and, and most of this month. But I think we're starting to kind of tentatively find our feet there again. And I think that's a pretty attractive part of the market for this year. So I would, you know, I think that after avoiding that or people staying away from that sector, it's going to behoove you to start paying more attention and and getting more into small and mids this year. Mike, what do you take away from some of these market commentators, some of which that look simply just at markets, a wide range of markets and how they are moving, sometimes individually, sometimes in relation to each other. And then these other market commentators that try to be economists and dissect every different economic data point that come out and then carry that into the markets to make their market calls. What do you think truly drives markets? Look, I think it's a mix of sentiment. It's it's a mix of positioning. It's a mix of economics. It's a mix of the cost of money. And, you know, on almost every front, things just don't look all that bad to me. I mean, from, on you know the cost of money front, the Fed is going to be cutting this year. You can argue about whether it's going to be three, four, five, six. I mean, the markets are all over the place, sort of trading that scenario. But we're certainly not in a situation where the Fed is going to be hiking rates, and they're probably not even just going to be sitting on them. So, from a monetary standpoint, you've got a tailwind. From an economic standpoint, let's be honest. This is waiting for this recession 
you, you know, it, it's like you, you've got to, you know, you're like Rip Van Winkle. You could probably fall asleep against a tree and wake up in 100 years and still be looking for it. <laughs> the recession hasn't come. Uh, if we made it through the bank failures, if we made it through basically this cycle's dot-com bust, which we had a couple year ago, years ago with all the SPACs blowing up and all the, you know, profitless tech companies going bankrupt and so on, we made it through that and we don't have a recession. Um, you've got that going for you from an economic standpoint. You do have, again, from a sentiment standpoint, even now, I don't see indicators suggesting that we're wildly bullish. Uh, you know, and it's not just the people on, on, on X or, or on the Internet that will never be bullish till, you know, kingdom come. But it's also just from a positioning standpoint. I mean, the data is leaning bullish, but it certainly doesn't look toppy. It certainly doesn't look like the wild, you know, crazy exuberance you see at the end of 1999 or anything like that. So from a sentiment standpoint, I think you still have a, a kind of a decent bullish tailwind. So, I mean, you throw together sentiment, economics, cost of money, all that, uh, policy basis, uh, it looks like a pretty bullish environment. I mean, you know, who knows what's going to happen with the election? There's still some other things that can happen. There's geopolitics. I mean, God forbid what's happening in the Middle East spreads and, and so on and so forth. Taiwan and China get into a shooting war, whatever. Um, but outside of those things, I think, you know, it's, it's a pretty constructive environment. So, I would say, you know, my advice for investors is don't go looking for a, you know, horribly negative story when there just isn't one. I don't think that's being Pollyanna-ish or whatever. I think it's just being rational. There's times, and you, you get you guys, I've been talking to you guys for a long, long time. There's times when I am really pretty bearish, but I just don't see a reason to be now, and I haven't seen one for the last year. Yeah, some great points there, Mike. And some people are just defaulted to always being uber bearish or uber bullish on either side of the equation. But one thing that has a lot of people's attention over the last year has been the movement of so much money into money markets on the sidelines because for the first time in over a decade, people could actually make some yield on their money in a safer money market or CD or some kind of a, a vehicle without so much risk to the markets. And a lot of people patted themselves on the back the second half of last year for doing that and making 4 or 5%, maybe even 5.5% on their money. But then they watched the markets take off and do double-digit gains in the fourth quarter, and maybe didn't feel as great about that decision. If we do start seeing the Fed cut rates, and if we see interest rates continue to pull back down, then some of those yields maybe won't be as attractive as they were last year. Do you think that that means some of that money comes back in and starts speculating again in the markets? Yeah, I mean, I think anytime you lower the cost of money and you lower the, the risk-free rate, uh, you know, the, the yield that people are picking up on just sort of their spare cash, I mean, you are going to be looking... It is going to drive some subset of the, the, the money that's parked basically to look for a home that's going to treat it better. You know, we're not, and I would say we're not going to be in that sort of uh, Tina, Zerp, Nerp, you know, everything's negative. So gosh, I have to chase every lousy garbage stock out there to find some, some yield and return, which is what helped fuel the SPAC in, in, in profitless.com bubble. We're not in that environment. We're in an environment where Yields are probably going to come down. They're not going to collapse. So you, again, I would argue that that's modestly bullish. That's an environment where some money is going to look for a better home, but you don't have to be, you know, a 90 year old retiree who goes, oh, you know, only has a couple of years left that's going to throw all their money into SPACs because they're earning zero or negative returns. You know, that's crazy. That's ridiculous. You don't want that. But an environment where rates might come down from five ish percent gently to four ish percent or maybe the high or mid threes um, is going to create modest fuel for markets. And I think, again, that, that's probably bullish. All right, let's get into a couple of specific markets. The first one being Bitcoin. Look, we, we recently had some Bitcoin ETF approvals. You even mentioned how still the environment at 
some money shows is simply that people are seemingly still very interested in the crypto space. However, ETFs were approved. Bitcoin has gone down since. What's your outlook on Bitcoin now that ETFs are in the mix? Sure. I think what you're going to see and what you already are seeing is an institutionalizing to a degree of a market that's lived on sort of the fringes of the financial markets world, right? I mean, you know, when Bitcoin first came out, there's probably five or 10 people standing around talking about it. And if, you know, you asked your average uh, retiree on the street, what was Bitcoin? They'd look at you like that you were crazy, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, more recently, you've had this sort of boom bust cycle. We've had, you know, still a lot of uh, individual speculation, uh, lack of sort of structure and institutionalization in the market. So you've had these wild, you know, quadrupling, quintupling of markets, then 80% plunges and so on and so forth. But now with, with ETFs getting involved, with futures being involved, with more, you know, advisors and family offices and, you know, endowments and things like that, that will say, okay, this is a burgeoning asset class that is not going to take 20% of, a re- of somebody's money, but a percent, two, three, four, who knows exactly what it's going to be. You're gradually going to see money move into this market and you're going to see more stabilization and more acceptance. Um, because I think it's too big of a trend to go away. I think there are some use cases out there. Yeah, I kind of look at it as, you know, just like the housing sector in the mid-2000s, which got wildly overinflated, huge boom, huge crash. You know, a lot of builders went bankrupt, mortgage lenders went bankrupt, people lost billions, blah, blah, blah. But out of that, that you know, whatever, that wipeout, there were a couple of companies that survived. There were some rational lenders that survived. People gradually started getting back into houses because they made sense on terms of a you know buying a house versus renting or price of a house multiple to income things like that. So the industry ultimately came out of that. Same thing with the dot coms. You know, I mean, why is Amazon such a Goliath today? Because it survived the boom bust in that market, even as many of its competitors got wiped out. So I sort of look at crypto as being the same thing. It had a gigantic, enormous bubble, a huge, gigantic crash and you know all these people going to jail and all these you know bad actors getting shoved out and companies going broke and so on but you're left with an asset class that does serve some purpose investors that are going to step in if they know that there's some guardrails around this market and that's what i think you're seeing so i think that's why uh again boom bust and then you know you pick through the ashes and see what's left that's where i think we are in the crypto space and that's why i think people are starting to pay attention again Well, Mike, I know you also follow the precious metal sector, and a lot of our listeners do as well. When you look at gold, really since before U.S. Thanksgiving last year and since then, it's been waffling around either side of 2000, but mostly held above it now for, you know, November, December into January. Not a lot of life in the gold stocks, though. Those are still kind of in the hurt locker, but a lot of people are waiting for the proverbial breakout in gold. Do you see that happening in 2024? Do you see us waffling sideways here and in, in limbo forever? Or is there a risk of a pullback in the precious metal sector? No, I mean, I think, you know, we've gotten up, we've tagged that breakout level. And unlike in past times where we've quickly kind of failed, you know, right now we seem to be consolidating rather than failing. Um, so I'm pretty optimistic there. I mean, admittedly, this is kind of somebody who's been pretty optimistic for a while and it hasn't panned out to a true breakout. But I think I'm, I'm pretty optimistic there. I think that there's a lot of things that argue for gold uh, beyond just technicals. I mean, you've got monetary policy. You've got people looking for other things that, you know, in an environment where the dollar is not going up every month like it did last year for most of the year and so on. Things that argue for strength there. So, um, you know, I think that that I think it's still an area you want to lean bullishly. I mean, obviously, it'd be great for people who have been patient to get that breakout. Uh, it's hard to say, don't worry, this time it's really going to happen. 
I think, okay, I'm going to say it this time. It's really going to happen. So <laughs> there you have it. I think that, uh, again, because you've got some tailwinds in the form of policy, you've got some tailwinds in the form of the cost of money, uh, currency, and so on that, that argue for a better environment. So patience is annoying sometimes, but sometimes it's also the best, uh, the best choice as an investor. So then does that gold price breakout finally drive the stocks, carry the stocks with it? Yeah, I mean, I think it has to, right? I mean, anytime you're a commodity or metals producer and your underlying market does well, it arguably should be bullish for the sector overall. I mean, there's going to be bad players. There's going to be companies that caught, get caught. There's going to be companies that, you know, have uh, operational issues and so on that are going to cause problems. But I mean, in a bullish macro backdrop kind of environment, ultimately, it's good for the sector. So yeah, I, I would think that you're going to see better times ahead. Well, Mike, what about the energy space? Oil and nat gas are always a wild ride. Uh, 2022, they were a breakout story. 2023, they were a pullback story. How's 2024 setting up for the energy space? Yes, interesting. I actually just had a conversation with a guy who's a pretty big analyst in that sector. We're going to be releasing the episode soon. His take was, he kind of talked about the clean energy transition, you know, how it's more of a, an evolution versus revolution. Uh, how there's going to be a lot of demand for traditional oil and gas and, and, you know, need for things like what the oil services companies are doing, especially internationally for a long, long time. Kind of talked about the idea of, of going from, uh, you know, much of the world that still has sort of needs to go to an energy abundant environment from being sort of energy strapped. So all of that adds up to a generally bullish long term thesis. So, you know, I think that again, that sector, uh, had a great 2022. 2023 wasn't anything impressive. I would call myself as modestly bullish there. And I think that's probably a, a good stance for investors to have too. What about copper then too? Because boy, oh boy, I hear a lot of bullish comments about copper, the supply demand imbalance, why copper needs to be much higher just for new builds to happen. But copper also does tie into the economy and with a bit of a better outlook for the economy, even though a lot of people still waiting for that recession, is this year the year that copper finally has its day to shine and truly break out? You know, again, maybe modestly bullish. I, I think the problem with a lot of the base metals is that, it, you know, money that's not sort of sector focused, specific, is going to look at it as just a China play, right? And they're going to look at Chinese headlines. And they're going to say Chinese economy still stinks. The Chinese stock market's at a five-year low. Or, you know, they're having to throw hundreds of billions of dollars more at their, their real estate and stock market because of all the issues they're having there with lenders going broke and nobody wanting to build these, you know, buy these ghost cities and so on. And that, that, that's just my issue with some of the, they're just sort of, you know, whether it's, it's proper or not, that is kind of the perception. And when perception rules, sometimes actual money follows. And I think that that's why some of those, those base metals are just going to have a hard time getting much momentum, even if the U.S. economy were to do very well, you need to see it drag China up. And I just don't think that's what we're seeing right now. Well, Mike, if we widen the scope out internationally, any other markets outside of the U.S. markets that have your attention as potential areas for investors to look at? Yeah, again, I, you know, I think so much of, of the, especially, you know, the Asian sphere and a lot of South America that exports to China and so on is tied to that. There's concerns about the geopolitics there. So I think that you can make a case that some of these markets are undervalued, but they're undervalued for good reasons. I'd like to see just some sort of geopolitical detente with China. I'd like to see some, you know, indications that they're, they're getting a handle on their economic issues. They're maybe going to do a bigger stimulus or something. It would take something like that uh, to really get me to, to look more at developing and emerging markets. I'd be more inclined to lean towards some of the developed markets if I'm look overseas, places like Europe and so on. 
uh, that I think can, you know, kind of get dragged up by U.S. strength and maybe just some, yeah, it's a stalemate situation. We worry less about what's happening in Eastern Europe. That would probably be good for those areas. So that's where I'd focus personally. All right, Mike, we've covered a lot of different sectors. Thank you so much for your insights and sharing some of the insights you get from all of the money shows. That's why I like the shows that you guys put on. It's a wide range of comments and you can hear bullish bearish comments on a lot of different sectors, all just playing, you know, whatever direction those markets are going. Thanks again for your time, Mike. We'll chat uh, probably in another few weeks. I hope you have a great rest of your weekend. Sounds good. Take care, guys. Al Corlin's firm, A.B. Corlin and Associates Incorporated, provides consulting services to public companies on matters of regulatory compliance. To find out more, follow the link from www.kereport.com. The Corlin Economics Report will be back after this brief timeout. Providing unique reporting on markets and companies since 1990. This is the Corlin Economics Report. All right, welcome back. Continuing to listen to the weekend edition of the KE Report. And we are now shifting our focus to the energy sector as we are chatting with Joseph Schachter, founder and editor of the Schachter Energy Report. Also publishes a free report called Eye on Energy, which breaks down more of the macro fundamentals in oil and natural gas. As we always do with Joseph, we'll start off on the macro front for oil and natural gas and then drive down into some of the stocks and answer some of your questions that you have sent in. Joseph, on the oil front, we have seen oil mostly trade sideways but at least a little upward bias recently as we're recording this oil's right around 75 to 76 dollars a barrel again it entered the year in the low 70s so kind of a slow trade but at least a little upward bias here joseph in terms of key fundamentals on the supply demand side anything else that's caught your eye take us through some of the key drivers at least in the near term for price Sure, my pleasure, and I'm glad to be with you again. Crude oil, uh, we had targeted, uh, when we sent out our, our SCR um, Outlook 2024, we said that we thought the, in, the, in Q1 uh, that we were looking for a range, uh, you know, which would be at the bottom end, you know, 64, 65, and uh, 80 at the higher end, and uh, that seems to be where we see things for Q1. And the reason we're looking for lower prices is right now there's probably six to eight dollars of war premium in because of the Red Sea and the Houthis and the shipping uh, requiring uh, ships to go through the you know the Cape around Africa and that is adding to costs. We also had cold weather which uh, shut in a lot of North Dakota production, which is slowly coming back. So we're looking at uh, you know demand uh, it being weaker because of the, the you know the cold weather and slow economies. We're, you know, we're seeing the UK coming out with recessionary data, as is Germany. We've seen China's stock market implode because of all the weak conditions there and the government trying to find ways to, you know, get the economy back and get people spending. And then, you know, the cold weather we recently had pushed the price up as well. Remember, we had almost blackouts here in uh, Alberta with the warning to cut demand, which people did after they got the warning. And then with help from Saskatchewan, we, we didn't have any blackouts. But you've seen uh, Texas getting close to blackouts. 
And then when those really bad days occurred, we had $10 gas prices. But now that we have milder weather, you know, plus seven in Calgary, um, you're looking at uh, uh, prices under two bucks again for natural gas. So for oil, I think we're in the next month or two, we could be looking at a break of 70 again. Every time we see it below 70, we're going to add new buy ideas. We right now, um, you know, from early 2023, we were quite cautious. We only had five names. In March, when we had the, you know, $65 oil, we added um, 14 ideas. And then in December, when we busted 70, we added another seven. And then we minused out uh, from takeovers a couple of companies. So the net is we have 25 ideas on the buy list right now. And my expectation is we'll probably add another five sometime between now and the end of February as we get a pullback below 70. And then we're watching the TSX Energy Index. It's 239 today. We think it'll go below 230. And then the bullish percentage index, uh, another index indicator we watch, was 65% three weeks ago. It's now 43. And we think it'll get below 10%, which is another buy signal. So we're watching our buy signals. And when we get them, we have a lot of stocks that are cheap. We've introduced two new stocks, one in our last issue and one in this coming issue. So we've got a lot of great ideas at bargain prices, trading around PDP, proved developed producing reserves, significantly below 2P reserves, and uh, you know multiples of two and three times cash flow. So there's a lot of bargains in both the energy area, the energy service area, pipeline and infrastructure. This is one of the cheapest times that we're going to get. Uh, we're not going to get as cheap as uh, March and April of 2020, but relative to other corrections in, in, in the sector, I think we're getting into bargain territory and heading into the end of the year, if I'm right, that we go to $90 WTI and then we start seeing $3 uh, ACO and NYMEX on a regular basis, I think we're going to see the sector uh, have a, you know, the index go up by 25%. But since uh, the index is heavily weighted to Suncor and and, and the CNQ and Synovus and, and Imperial, I think the the more um, exciting growth-focused E&P companies and service companies could see 50% upside from the upcoming lows, which to me is very, very exciting. And as you know, I, I've been you know poo-pooing and being cautious for a while, and now I'm, get, I'm getting ready to not only say I'm a buyer, which I've been doing, as our uh, people can see on the SCR buy ownership list that I've been buying regularly when stocks are cheap, but I'm getting close to, if we get this next decline, to saying the sector is a table-pounding buy. All right, Joseph. So we'll be looking for this next pullback for the table pounding buys. And it's a similar message you had when we did see a low and then you got you caught a nice rally in that. So that was a good call last time. So hopefully we see that low. And then if you're looking for $90 WTI and $3 NYMEX and ACO pricing and net gas, should be a nice run in the energy stocks after a corrective move. But I want to hone in on net gas. We had talked a little bit before recording and you've talked on previous shows about the impact that the new liquid natural gas terminals are going to have in Canada and the U.S. I wonder if you could filter that down into how you expect that to affect the natural gas pricing in the market in the U.S. and Canada, because there's a big delta in some of the overseas pricing compared to what we see here domestically. And then how does that affect the nat gas companies? How do they capture some of that spread? So I think the key is we have to remember that Canada and the west coast of Canada is a much shorter um, sailing distance between the west coast to Japan to South Korea, to Vietnam, to China. And so uh, that is, gives us an advantage over the Gulf Coast, which has to go through the Panama Canal 
or through the bottom of South America, that adds to the shipping distance and the cost. And if you remember, the, the, the Panama Canal has a lot of water problems, so levels are low, so ships can't be fully loaded, which again adds to the cost per unit um, of sending natural gas uh, through the Panama Canal. So I think we're looking at a, a big ad advantage to us once we're up and running. The first uh, LNG plant facility is called LNG Canada. Shell's the one who's the lead behind it uh, with other partners. That'll be at uh, bringing on 2.1 BCF a day. That's on a base of 17 BCF being produced right now in Western Canada, so a nice growth phase. But when you add in that they're planning to do LNG Canada 2, uh, train 2, and then there's four other projects that plan to go uh, up, back by Enbridge and Pemina and, and the, and the uh, energy producers. All of that could add another 6-7 BCF, which is a massive growth rate on top of 17, and all of that could happen before the end of the decade. So that means we have a great growth. So let's look at the economics. If the price of natural gas is U.S. 18 to 20 in Asia and uh, – you know, we look at, uh, you know, it's $8 or so for, for to liquefy, to ship, and to put out on the other side and give a good return to the uh, owners, then the wellhead price could end up being, for those companies that can con contract into the LNG market, they could be looking to 5 to $8 Canadian per MRECF. When you have a buck or a buck and a half all input costs, you can see that's a good margin versus if you just sell into the domestic market at $3. So, Joseph, what are the characteristics of the companies that will be able to take advantage of this spread when these facilities are built? You're going to have to be a, a company that's either in Northeast BC. Uh, Arc is there, and Termaline is there, and, you know, there's, an, you know, uh, Crew Energy is there, and then there's, uh, you know, all the, all the big guys, you know, uh, you know, Sinopac is there, and PetroChina is there. Shell is there, so they're going to be uh, putting in their own gas, but many of them don't have enough gas when they go to um, the, the second train, so they may need to buy reserves. But the whole process in, in B.C. of getting approvals to drill First Nations, environmental hurdles, people would prefer to drill in Alberta because the processes here are more streamlined. The First Nations are on side more, and uh, we're seeing a lot more activity in Alberta than B.C., so I think that we're going to see gas going from northwest Alberta, so Montney, Duvernay gas going by pipe into BC, into the coastal pipeline. And then at the same time, we're going to see strong demand in the, you know, in the Fort Mac area for, because of the uh, oil sands and SAG-D. And then we have the, the gas that gets shipped to eastern Canada and also to the U.S. Uh, as well. So we're going to see a tightening of supply and the big supplies that are in storage right now will get drained quickly. That sets up, you know, very high prices for late 24, 25 on and consistently higher prices. And even and as more and more of these LNG facilities come on, it just tightens it up and tightens it up even more. Well, Joseph, we probably get the most questions when it comes to energy around nat gas, even more so than oil. I think most investors are used to the volatility in oil and are trying to play that cycle the way you lined it out, buying on the dips. But with nat gas, it's so volatile. There's a lot of people that wonder if nat gas could get stuck at lower prices because of the huge amount of nat gas produced from oil production. We've had some energy specialists and commodity specialists come on our show and say they don't expect nat gas to do anything because of how much 
oil production has been coming out of the U.S., out of Canada, and all over the world. Do you think that peak oil production or, or growing oil production could put a crimp on the net gap price in any way? Or do you think that because of the reasons you just outlined, it'll overcome the excess of net gas? The argument is correct right now because we are adding to production in Western Canada because the TMX pipeline is going to take an extra five or 600,000 BOEs a day, which adds 10% to the production base of Western Canada. Once you have that on, there is no growth unless you're prepared to do uh, rail. So to me, the argument is correct today that uh, there's more natural gas being produced because of the condensate needed to move the, uh, the heavy oil, heavier barrels and the oil sands barrels, and that is true. But once this new production is on for the TMX and the TMX is producing on a regular basis, then where is the next growth phase? And that's where I disagree with the bears. So when you're looking at companies that have a split of oil and natural gas production or just those that are purely natural gas focused, do you like in a way the safety or at least diversification that oil and natural gas companies provide? Or do you like the potential torque that just a simple straight natural gas provider could provide? Well, I like the companies that are oil, that are natural gas with, with light oil condensate as part of the package because you know the condensate is going to be needed you know, in the Fort Mac and, and uh, Edmonton area with all the refineries, with all the, the new petrochemical plants. There's going to be a big demand domestically for natural gas. So I think the bears are wrong that there's going to be a glut of natural gas. Once the LNG comes on, that, that, that argument is gone because you're taking like 2.1 BCF on day one of LNG Canada up and running. So to me, would they have an argument into late this year, maybe Q1 if, every, if something gets delayed for whatever reason, but you know, like TMX has been delayed and delayed and delayed, you never know. But once the LNG Canada is running, I believe their argument is, is, is invalid at that point. Well, Joseph, as far as the actual stocks themselves, between the oil and the nat gas stocks, if you look at ones that are primarily focused on either oil or nat gas, you've said in the past that you were a little more bullish on the nat gas stocks than the oil stocks. It sounds like you're bullish on all of them if we have a big run this year, but which one would you be favoring and why as far as outperformance? Well, the reason I like natural gas stocks is that, the, you know, I, I can see the price of oil going from, let's say we're right now 75. It could go to 90 to 100 by Q4. And then next year in 2025, you might see $90, $100 pricing. So we're looking at a 50 to 70% increase in the price. Right now, we're sub $2 on natural gas. Once LNG Canada comes on, I think we're looking at 5 and $6 gas. And I think into the end of the decade, we look at 7 or 8 So one, you've got much higher price upside in natural gas than you do in oil. Second, you've got massive volume increases in exports and, and in demand versus what you would have for oil. So there's a 10% increase coming this year in oil because of TMX but you've got a 30% plus growth rate in volumes of natural gas into the end of the decade. So I like natural gas stocks. One, many of them are trading at PDP values. And when there's a shortage of natural gas and, and we have a hot energy stock market, companies trade at 2P proved plus probable reserve values, plus there's something for land and, and, and possibles. And we end up getting takeovers at the top of the cycle as we did in 2008 
as we did in you know 1979, 80, 81, and companies trading at 2P. So you take two, you know value today where companies are trading at PDP on low commodity prices. You go from PDP to 1P to 2P. That gives you a big bump up of three or four times. Then on top of that, you add in the commodity price lift and also new exploration and, and, and more volumes coming on. And you're looking at reserve reports that in 2028, 29, that could be five, ten times better than they are today. Wow, that's very bullish heading into the end of this decade in terms of individual natural gas stocks or certain types of those stocks. Are there ones that you've noticed that are lagging or just completely underperforming the broad sector of natural gas stocks? Oh, I think everything is. You know, if you look at names, you can look at Paramount, you can look at uh, Tourmaline, you can look at, you know, Vermilion, you, you can look at Crew, you can look at New Vista, there, you know, Pinecliff, maybe Birchcliff. There's just, you just, like the whole list I'm looking at is trading below their book value, below their NAVs. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, Termaline, the premier company, uh, which is now trading, you know, in the, in the, where's Termaline today? $58. It has an, an NAV of 77. So even the premier company is trading a much cheaper. If you go to Termaline, it's trading at 25 or, or Paramount's trading at 25. And it's got a $41 NAV based on 2022 reserves. You know, and you, you start taking into account, the upside, here's another cheap one, Crew, which is trading in the fours, 2022 NEV was 1570 And that NEV will go up in the next four or five years. Well, Joseph, let's also talk about some of the oil stocks. That was a great list of natural gas stocks for investors to, uh, to look at in their watch list. But in the oil stocks, are you more interested at this point in 2024 in the dividend-paying larger companies that are more stable? And can, can they keep paying dividends at current prices? And or the smaller, more growth-oriented companies that can maybe drill more wells, grow their production profile, have a nice growth wedge, which ones animate you more for 2024? Well, you know, if you look at companies, you know, white cap is 66% liquids, you know, and it gives you a, a dividend of 8%, and they're paying down debt pretty rapidly. You know, that to me looks like a great uh, opportunity for investors. You know, you look at, uh, you know, I'm looking at some of the others with uh, Crescent Point, you got a 5% yield, 76% liquids, and it's trading at a discount, you know, two, three bucks from its NAV. You can go to a, you know, a, you know, I'm just looking at some of the other oily names just to look at the percentages. Surge Energy, 86% liquids. The company's NAV is 8.74, and the stock is trading below six, and it's got a 7.6% dividend yield. So there's lots of opportunities. Uh, Bonterra. You know, you've got a, a you know, 60% liquids. You know, the NAV on Bonterra is 13.78, and it trades, uh, you know, in the fives. Inplay Oil, 57% liquids. And, you know, Inplay has a, an NAV of 6.08, and the stock trades, you know, 2.30. So there's lots of bargains. And, and in the case of, you know, Inplay, you're getting a 7.9% dividend yield. Touching on that dividend aspect, then, are dividends sustainable in your eyes? You sound very bullish on these stocks just from an undervalued standpoint, but are dividends sustainable? It depends upon uh, their hedge books and it depends upon their cost structure and the balance sheet. So if, you, if you've taken care of your balance sheet and you, and, you know, and, and you don't have 
a problem where you need to borrow to pay the dividend, then you're okay. You know, if you have to borrow to pay the dividend, then you could be in jeopardy, especially with institutional pressure saying, don't do that. You also brought up earlier in this conversation some of the energy services companies. So how would you look at, I know they're a little different, pipeline companies are different than drillers or different than other tech companies in the energy services, but how are you seeing the overall health of the energy services sector? Well, the industry in in Q4 and Q1 are going to do very well. They're fully booked in Q1. When I was talking to some of the energy companies, they say to me that Q1 is booked at high prices. The issue is how, where is the price of natural gas and oil when we get into Q2, and how active a program will people have? The, the winter program is baked in. Everybody's committed to doing their, what they're going to do. So the question then comes is, once the winter drilling and we get into breakup, the companies are going to look at their, you know, their cost structure, and if the price of the commodities is down, you know they're going to take the two-by-four to the, to the service sector, say, okay, my rig rates you know, for, for my you know, my, my rate drilling in the Montney or Duvernay, you know, the, the price per day has to come down or you've got to throw things in. And in the case of the frackers, there's two or three new frackers, the DG4s in Canada, which means there's, uh, there's an excess supply. That means somebody could, uh, you know, to keep the rigs working, the equipment working could lower their price. Service rigs could come down. Steel pipe is already coming down a bit. So we're beginning to see um, the chance of companies saying that their cost to complete wells is going to come down in Q2, Q3, simply because of the lower activity level and the, um, their ability to take the two-by-four to their suppliers. All right, Joseph, we've been around the energy sector here. Thank you very much for your outlooks and outlooks not just for this year, even for some areas heading into the end of this decade We'll see how everything moves here. But hey, look, these companies are still cash flowing quite well, but they just lost some of their momentum to the upside that captured a lot of the market attention a couple years ago. We'll see if they can regain that in an environment now where uh, the broad averages are doing better. So we'll see if that money filters back in. But as you've outlined, higher prices in oil or especially natural gas would definitely help that. Joseph, thank you for your time on this weekend show. Everybody, thanks for tuning in. Again, please visit our website, kereport.com, podcast and social media channels, VKE Report, to keep up to date with us and listen to all the daily editorials. Everyone, hope you all have a great rest of your weekend. Thanks for tuning in.